Another amen for that. That was great. Open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 32. As I remind you that you're composing your testimony every day by the words you say, by the way you act, by the way you behave, by the things you do, by the places you go, by your attitude, by how you handle difficulties, by how you respond to criticism. Your testimony is really your whole life story from beginning to end. Hebrews 11 is the great hall of faith, we call it, and Hebrews 12 reminds us that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. That is, all these people that we read about in the Scripture bear witness to God's activity in their lives. And the end of that chapter says, but they were not made complete without you and me. In other words, you and I, as followers of Christ, we are part of this great cloud of witnesses. And you and God is working in you to develop your story and your testimony. Psalm 78.5 says, God established a testimony in Jacob. We're studying the life of Jacob. God was at work in Jacob's life to bring Jacob to himself and to bring others around him to himself. That's what God is doing in your life as well. It's God at work in you to draw you closer to him and to use you to draw others closer to him. Last week we saw in Jacob's life, well actually when we first started this series a few weeks ago, we saw where Jacob's testimony began. It began as a grasper. That's how he was born. He was grasping the heel of his twin brother Esau. And that's how he got the name Jacob, grasper. See, all of us are born like that. We're all selfish, sinful people. We're all born with a sinful nature. We are born with that part of us that rebels against God. Every one of us, all have sinned, the Bible says, and come short of the glory of God. Then last week we talked about that defining spiritual moment in Jacob's life where he moved from being a grasper to being a vower. That is, he made a vow. Jacob vowed a vow unto God. And that a vow is not some you saying, here's what I plan to do. It's you making a commitment to something. The Bible tells us it's better not to vow than to vow and not keep it. Jacob made a vow and he told the Lord, you are my God. And that was the defining moment in Jacob's life where it changed everything for him. It changed his perspective. It changed the course of his life and his eternity. And there was evidence in Jacob's life. And we begin to see that in Genesis 31 and 32, that God, he has now been reconciled to God. And in, verse, in chapter 31, we see in verse 44 how he now desired to be reconciled to his father-in-law. Remember how he sinned against his father-in-law and, and, and treated him poorly. And we see here in chapter 31, verse 44, Now therefore come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be... Let there be witnesses between you and me. And then in verse 55 it says, And early in the morning Laban, that is his father-in-law, arose and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. 
Then Laban departed and returned to, the, to his place. So there was peace now between he and Laban. But there remained one that Jacob was not at peace with. And who was that? That was Esau. And that's where we come to chapter 32. But yet Jacob wanted peace with Esau. He now had peace with God. As evidence of this change in his life, he wanted to be at peace with others. And he wanted to be at peace specifically with his brother. Because he had wronged his brother by stealing the blessing and the birthright. Chapter 32, verse 3 through 5, the scripture says, Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, I have uh, flocks, I have male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. So now Jacob is hoping that he can make peace with his brother. So we see this evidence in his life. But I want to remind you of something else as we begin to talk about what we're going to talk about today. Jacob was still imperfect. He was still not perfect. You see, when you give your life to Christ, you're not perfected. Don't you wish that were the case? Don't you wish that as soon as you got saved, you were made perfect? But that's not the case. There was still much work to be done in Jacob's life and heart. Just as there's much work to be done in my own heart and life, and as our faith begins to develop, and often it comes through great struggle, as we will see today. So follow along with me in Genesis 32, and let's stand to honor the Lord and His Word. We're going to pick up with verse 22. Genesis 32, verse 22. And Jacob arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man capital M, wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, that is when the man saw that the man could not prevail against Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Who, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face. And my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the muscle that shrank. Let me pray for us. Father, if we're to get any message from this word, it's only going to be because you speak it. Holy Spirit, You've inspired this word. Now please inspire me to speak it and inspire us all to hear it and receive it. And then, Lord, to live it, to believe it, and to live it. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Even though Jacob had committed his life to the Lord, that didn't mean that his struggles were over. Jacob the grasper turned vower is now Jacob the struggler. Struggle is part of our testimony. Do you know that? Struggle is part of your testimony. It's as much a part of the story of what God has done and is doing in your life as are times of peace and comfort. So in this message, I believe we'll be able to identify with Jacob's struggles. And I want to identify them for you here that we know the things Jacob struggled with. First of all, he struggled with guilt and shame. Notice verse 10 of Genesis 32. Jacob said, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies. Why would Jacob have guilt? Well, think about it. We already talked about this at the beginning of the message. Jacob had deceived his brother Esau, tricked him out of his birthright. That is, the firstborn Esau was by birth to receive all these things. He tricked Esau out of that. Then he tricked him out of his blessing. So he sinned against Esau. He sinned against Laban, his father-in-law. And most of all, he sinned against God. See, that's how all of us are. We stand guilty because we have sinned against each other and we have sinned against God. We are guilty. Say that. I am guilty. And you know what comes along with sin? Sin, sin breeds guilt. 2 Timothy 3.6 talks about we're burdened with the guilt of sin. Hebrews 10 says this, the old system under the law of Moses, the sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, the scripture says, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who come to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time. And their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, the old sacrificial system just reminded them of their guilt because it couldn't remove sin. David pleaded with God in Psalm 51, Deliver me from the guilt of my bloodshed. You see, with guilt comes shame. Shame is guilt's twin sister. Proverbs 13.5 talks about wickedness leading to shame. Daniel 9.8, Daniel prayed to the Lord, O Lord, to us belongs shame because we have sinned. Romans 6.21, Paul says that we are ashamed of the things that we used to do. Think back on your past, the things you've done that you know are sinful. Would you stand up here and announce them to us? Any takers? Now, a few weeks ago, I announced some of the foolish things I did, and I'm ashamed of those things. See, because we don't want anybody to know because we're ashamed of them. 
And you know what happens with guilt and shame? It leads us to try to appease God. Jacob, when we look at verses 13 to 21, listen to what Jacob did. So Jacob, at the end of verse 13, wanted to make a present for Esau, his brother. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams. Now, of course, this is back in the days, and they, were, they measured wealth by how, much, how many animals they had, because these were basically nomadic peoples. 30 milk camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. That's how much he wanted to give Esau. And it says he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Tell them, saying, They are your servant Jacob's. It's a present sent to my Lord Lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. So he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will, what? Appease him with this present. Jacob was trying to appease Esau with all of these gifts trying to buy Esau's favor, trying to purchase his forgiveness. Even though he had been forgiven by God. You see, sometimes I think that's how Christians live their lives. We try to do all these things to appease God. We haven't truly accepted 100% that He's cleansed us of all of our sins, that He's made us right with Him. And yes, we are to go make things right with our brother and with our sister and with other people we've wronged. But our service to God, our money, our Bible reading, our prayer, our ministry, our missions, none of those things appease God. Sometimes we think we've got to keep doing these things so God won't be mad at us anymore. Our good works are often to appease not only God, but our own conscience. Guilt is an awful motivator and an awful taskmaster. It's never the reason we should do anything for God or for others. But how many of us are guilty? We serve out of guilt. Listen, if if, if God has forgiven you, where is your guilt? Why are you still living in guilt? It makes no sense. A little boy was visiting his grandparents, and they gave him his first slingshot. And he had gone out in the woods, and he was practicing with that slingshot. He was trying to shoot birds, and he never could hit his target. So he just came back dejected back into his grandparents' yard, and he spied his grandmother's pet duck. And on an impulse, he took aim, and he let the stone fly, and you guessed it, it hit the duck square in the head, and the duck fell over dead. Well, the boy panicked. He took the dead duck and he hid it in the wood pile. 
And then he looked up and he saw his little sister Sally had seen the whole thing. After lunch that day, Grandma said, Sally, let's wash dishes. Sally said, well, Johnny told me he wanted to help clean the kitchen today. <laughs> Didn't you, Johnny? And she goes, quack, quack. <laughs> so Johnny did the dishes. Later, Grandpa asked the two children if they wanted to go fishing. Grandma said, well, no, Sally, uh, I need Sally to stay here and help me make supper. Sally smiled and said, well, that's all taken care of because Johnny's volunteered to do it. Quack, quack. So Johnny stayed while Sally went fishing. After several days of Johnny doing both his chores and Sally's, he finally couldn't stand it. He went to his grandmother and confessed that he had killed the duck. Grandma said, I know, Johnny. And she hugged him and she kissed him. She said, I saw the whole thing. And I've already forgiven you. I was just wondering how long you would let Sally make a slave out of you. We laugh, but that's how we live. God has seen everything we've done. And we've asked him to forgive us. And we've claimed his forgiveness. But we still live and serve under a cloud of guilt. And that's not how God wants us to relate to him. We seem to believe that if we can work hard enough for God, that we can convince him to forgive us and let us off the hook. But where's the grace in that? It's actually an offense to God's grace and God's mercy to operate like that. Turn with me or look on the screen at Galatians chapter 3. I want to read the, quite a few of these verses. I'm going to put on my glasses because I don't want to slaughter them. Galatians 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing of the faith? What's the answer to that question? Did you receive the gift of God's Spirit by working or by believing? Okay, remember that. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? What's the answer to that question? No, that's ridiculous. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. How did Abraham become righteous? What does the scripture say? He believed God. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles that you and me by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law, if you want to try to approach God by works, you're under a curse. For it is written, Curse is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So let's say, yeah, well, I want to try to appease God. I want to try to earn God's forgiveness by doing all these works. Then you better be perfect. 
Raise your hand if you've been there before. Perfect. So you're all under a curse. Right? How do you get out from under that curse? But no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Faith. Yet the law is not of faith. But the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So how do we get out from under that curse? We place our faith and trust in what Jesus Christ has done at Calvary's cross when He became the sacrifice for our sin, when He took on our sin, when He paid for our sin. Notice back in Genesis chapter 33, we won't read that whole chapter, but if you will, let me call your attention to verse 3 and ask you this question. How did Esau receive Jacob? 33.3, Then he crossed over before them, that is Jacob, and he bowed himself to the ground seven times. He humbled himself, that is, before his brother. And then Esau, verse 4, ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And Jacob gives all these gifts to him, and Esau says, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. So how did, Jacob, how did Esau receive Jacob? Well, he thought all these gifts Jacob was offering was ridiculous. He said, Jacob... I've got enough. Now let me ask you something. What can you give God that he didn't already have? Nothing. What do you think you can give God to appease him? Nothing. You see, we just sang about that. The work that was required to appease God for sin was done on Calvary's cross, and it was completed. Jesus said it was. On the cross, he said, it, finish it, is finished. It's finished. Esau received Jacob with grace. Esau received Jacob with, with love and forgiveness. And it's a picture of how God receives us, not by our works. Even after we're saved, he doesn't receive us based on our works. You came to him the first time by faith, that, and, and through God's grace, that's the way you maintain your relationship with God. It's a faith relationship. Now, where do works come in? Well, the Bible tells us where works come in. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, the scripture says, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So our works are an outgrowth of our relationship. You see, if I said I loved my wife, but I cheated on her as often as I could, do I love my wife? No, I don't. I love myself. So if I say I love God, but I keep cheating on Him and doing things that He would not want me to do, do I really love God? No, I don't. 
So you see, the relationship, therefore, must be based on love, not on works. Our good works is out of love for his forgiving grace, not out of guilt to earn his favor. Jacob struggled with, with guilt and shame. Jacob struggled also with fear. Anybody struggle with fear? It goes by another name that you're more familiar with. Worry. Do you know worry and fear is the same thing? People say, I'm not afraid, but you worry yourself sick over stuff you can't control. Look at verse 6 and 7, back in Genesis 32. Then the messengers, okay, so Jacob sent these messengers ahead to Jacob, I mean to Esau. Then they return and say, we came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. So what would your response be? Same as Jacob's in verse 7. Jacob was greatly afraid. He was shaken in his boots. He was afraid. Verse 11, he prays in his fear, God deliver me from the hand of my brother Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and my, the, the mother of my children and my children. Jacob was afraid Esau was coming to exact his revenge. He feared that, that his sin would catch up to him and the the consequences would be more than he could bear. You see, when we're trapped in guilt and shame, guilt and shame are twin sisters, but fear is the kissing cousin. God, that fear comes knocking and says, God's going to make you pay. You better watch out. Judgment's on the way. You're condemned. And this fear stifles our love relationship with God, where we draw away from God out of fear. What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? They used to walk with God in the cool of the day. Now they sinned. What did they do? What did Adam say? Hey, God said, Adam, where are you? We're over here in the bushes, Lord. Why are you in the bushes? I was afraid. Fear always makes you draw away from God. And why do you fear? Because the devil's whispering condemning thoughts in your ear. God's going to get you. And so we pull back. And we try to relate to God out of fear of retribution instead of out of love. The greatest commandment was asked of Jesus. What is it? And Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Paul said the love of Christ compels me. It's what motivates him. So you see, the greatest motivator is not guilt or shame or fear. The greatest motivator is what? Love. Why, do you, why are you here this morning? Well, it's Sunday and my mom made me come. Or my wife made me come. Or it's Sunday and I'm just so guilty if I stay home in bed, I should be here. I'm afraid God will punish me and give me a bad week if I don't show up to church on Sunday. That's why some of you are here. Let's just face it. Be honest. Don't play games with God. He knows your heart. You don't think preachers go through that? You don't think that, that I've, I've struggled with that in my life? I guarantee I have. And sometimes still do. You know, you better, you better read your Bible before you do anything else. God's going to get you. Preachers, you ought to be praying. How can you preach on prayer when you're not praying like you ought to be praying? God's going to get you. 
Don't think that his tactics that he, he tries out on you don't work on me. It stifles our love relationship. Two explorers were on a jungle safari when suddenly a ferocious lion jumped out in front of them. The first one whispered, keep calm, keep calm. Remember what we read in that book on wild animals. If we stand perfectly still and look the lion right in the eye, eventually he'll turn and run. The other guy says, yeah, I know, but I read the book and you read the book, but I'm wondering, did the lion read the book? <laughs> the devil is the author of fear. And listen, he's not a lion. You say, well, the Bible says he is. No, the Bible doesn't say the devil's a lion. Look it up. I looked it up this morning just to make sure. I want to make sure everything I say is biblical. And if I, it ain't biblical, I hope y'all forget it and don't hear it. The Bible says the devil walks about like a roaring lion. It'd be like me putting on a lion suit going around trying to scare people. I love to watch these, these funny videos where people get scared. I just watched one this week, and it was one of this, this guy. He was like for Valentine's. He put a bear suit on. I mean like a teddy bear suit. And he's sitting in the corner, and the, and the mom and the, and the baby come in and set, set their stuff down, and he just moves his arm like that, the teddy bear. And she jumps like that. And she was looking, it was just funny to watch. And, and on and on it goes, but that's what the devil's like. He just puts on a suit. He acts like a roaring lion when he's just a sissy. He's a wimp. Who's the lion? Jesus Christ is the lion of Judah. Who wrote the book? Who knows what's in the book? Jesus. And look, when the, when the devil steps out dressed in his lion costume and he starts roaring in your ear, to be afraid that God's going to get you. You just claim what Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, has already done for you, and that devil, the Bible says, will tuck his tail and go running. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We struggle with fear. We struggle with guilt. We struggle with shame, but we also struggle in our faith, don't we? Jacob struggled in his faith in verse 10. He said, I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come out and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely... Now, this is Jacob speaking to God. He said, For you said, I will surely treat you well. And make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So here's what I understand Jacob to be saying. Jacob's reminding God of the promise God made him. But it's not a faith-filled promise. It's, a, it's kind of a doubtful reminder. It's kind of like this. Jacob's saying, God, I know what you told me that you were going to do for me. But Esau's on the way. And he's got 400 men, so here's my plan. I'm going to get all these animals together, all these different kinds, and I'm, I'm going to send them ahead of me, and it's going to be a gift for Esau, and it's going to appease him. So that's my plan, God. How's it sound? Lord, please bless in Jesus' name. Isn't that what we do? We struggle to trust God. 
That's how we struggle to trust God. We know what God says, but we doubt Him and we feel we got to help Him out. The citizens of Feldkirch, Austria, didn't know what to do as Napoleon's massive army was preparing to attack. Soldiers had been spotted on the heights above the little town which was situated on the Austrian border. A council of citizens was hastily summoned to decide whether they should try to defend themselves or to raise the flag of surrender. It happened to be Easter Sunday and the people had gathered in the local church. The pastor stood and said, Friends, we've been counting on our own strength and apparently that has failed. As this is the day of our Lord's resurrection, let's just ring the bells, have our services as usual, and leave the matter in the hands of God. We know only our weakness and not the power of our God to defend us. The council accepted the pastor's plan and the church bells rang. The enemy, hearing the sudden peal, concluded that the Austrian army had arrived during the night to defend the town. So before the service ended, the enemy broke camp and left. There was a group of people that decided just to leave it in the hands of God. We have story after story after story in the, in the Bible that teaches us those kinds of things. Like Jehoshaphat, surrounded by a numberless horde. He appealed to God. He said, oh God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And in the middle of the night, that army started killing themselves. And when Jehoshaphat and his army woke up the next morning, the field was littered with dead. God had fought for them. But we struggle to trust God. What are you worried about? What's messing with you right now? What's troubling your heart as we speak? You know you're worried about something. Money. Health family problems, school, work, career. Have you prayed and asked God for the solution? Are you willing to trust him even if he doesn't tell you what the solution is? Or do you, have you already devised your plan of how to get yourself out of it. We struggle, don't we? It's part of our testimony. But I want to remind you that our struggles, as Jacob's were, are really with God. Verse 28 of this text says that... Well, verse um, 24 says, A man wrestled with him. And we find out who this man is as, as this man says, uh, I'm changing your name from Jacob to Israel, for you have struggled with God. And the Bible tells us in Hosea, in chapter 12, always let Scripture interpret Scripture, verse 3, that Jacob took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. When we struggle with guilt and shame, fear and faith, we're struggling with God. We're struggling to believe Him. 
we're struggling to accept the blessing that he's already given us. Notice Jacob wouldn't let the Lord go until he blessed him. So God blessed him, and he told Jacob, you have prevailed. That word in the Hebrew means overcome. And then God gave him a new name. The Bible says in Revelation 3.12, He who overcomes, I will write on him my new name. How have we overcome? It's only through Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. The victory that the choir just sang about that we have was already won by Jesus Christ. He is the overcomer, the original conqueror. His was the real struggle. If you don't believe that, I'm sure you do, but listen to Isaiah 53. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus is the one who really struggled for our sin. He took our sin, our guilt, our shame, our fear upon himself. And he gave us the blessing. What's the blessing that we get? Jacob said, I'll not let you go unless you bless me. God blessed him. What's the blessing you've, been, you've received? Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a blessing. Psalm 32 said, Blessed is he whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered. Your blessing is you're not condemned if you're in Christ. Your blessing is that you don't have to be afraid. Bible says in 2 Timothy 1.7 that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and a sound mind. 1 John 4 says that Perfect love cast out fear. God's love is perfect. We don't have to relate to God in fear. You're blessed because there's no problem too big. There's no need that can be unmet in your life by God. The Bible says in Philippians 4.13, My God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory. You don't have to live in fear and worry. 
you know him. There's no temptation too great. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. These are the truths that we must take hold of. As Jacob took hold of God, we must take hold of these truths and not let them go. Just as Jacob would not let the Lord go, we must not let God go on these matters. We must cling to these truths because they spell victory for us. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 12. He said, I make every effort to take hold of it because I have been taken hold of by Jesus Christ. I wonder if he had this instance of Jacob in mind when he wrote that verse of Scripture. He said, I'm taking hold of these truths of my Lord and Savior because He has taken hold of me. In your struggle, my dear friends, don't let go of God. But even if you feel yourself slipping, you must remember that if you're really His, He'll never let go of you. You are in His grip, even as you struggle. If you've given your life to Jesus, have you done that? Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Have you moved from, as Jacob did, from a selfish, sinful grasper and made that defining moment of commitment of your life to Jesus Christ? If you haven't, I invite you to do so today by just calling on the the name of the Lord and saying, God, I'm a sinner. Will you please forgive me of my sins? I'm committing my life to you. You know, there's no magic words. God looks at your heart. He sees your desire. If you just call out to him and ask him, he'll save you. The Bible says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There may be many of you here today who are like Jacob, who you've made that commitment to Christ, but you're struggling with guilt and shame. You haven't truly accepted the complete forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Let your past go. Paul said in that passage in Philippians, which you've been studying in Sunday school, that which is in the past, I let go of. That I might reach forward to that which is ahead. You can't cling to both opposite ends of your life. You've got to let go and receive the forgiveness and the grace of God. Some of you are struggling with fear. You live your life in fear of what's going to ha- bad's going to happen next. And all of this is stifling your love relationship with God. God wants you just to cling to Him. Let go of the guilt, let go of the shame, let go of the fear, and hang on to Him. Don't let Him go. Let all that other junk go. And you'll find victory and freedom and joy and peace in your relationship with God. Let's bow together.